Kia ora, hello, and welcome to Bod Almighty, the practical how-to podcast helping you feel better about your body, have a peaceful relationship with food, and go out into the world with confidence. Everywhere we turn these days, someone is telling us to love your body. But how? Well, by listening to this podcast is how. That's right. We are your hosts, Hannah Tunnicliffe and Michelle Sokolich. Without further ado, let's get started. So as an Australian, I would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of so-called Australia and acknowledge Elders past and present. I wish to acknowledge that sovereignty over the land has never been ceded and that the land that I grew up on and founded the Body Studies Project is stolen land. Thanks, Sarah. So today we've got Sarah Worth with us. She is a queer activist, writer and educator who grew up on Burrungum country in Queensland, Australia. Sarah works in the area of body studies and focuses on body-based oppression through an intersectional and social justice lens. Their work is strongly informed by an academic background in social science and a lived experience of eating disorders. In 2021, Sarah founded the Body Studies Project, an organisation dedicated to disrupting appearance and body-based oppression. The Body Studies Project aims to deliver intellectual discourse and accessible education, which sheds light on how our society and culture vilifies and tries to control unruly bodies through systems like diet culture and weight stigma, and believes it is only then that body liberation can truly be achieved and a world created where all bodies are safe and celebrated. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Today we're going to be talking about how to challenge our body ideals and specifically why we think thin is best. Now this is a massive topic. We could talk for hours. I, I mean, I could talk for hours um, about this. Um, and it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a nerd talk, which I love. So today what we're going to do is split it into three topics. And while we might only have time to touch on a few examples within each, we're going to put loads of resources in the show notes um, so that you can do a deep dive if you're curious. So the three topics we're talking about today are looking at our body ideals from the perspective of maths and morality and health and how those three topics have impacted our definition of a good body or a bad body. So to kick off with, talking about maths. Sarah, can you help us understand what on earth maths has to do with the establishment of what we think is good or bad, beautiful or not beautiful? Yeah, so it probably seems a bit weird, but maths actually has quite a lot to do with it. So whether it is um, our idea of um, BMI and how that's calculated to be, you know, the quote unquote correct weight, whether it's um, scales, which, you know, I know a lot of us use to see whether we're within these um, correct categories, whether it's clothing sizes, um, the idea that you can actually use math to work out if, uh, whether or not someone or something is beautiful. Yeah, it actually ties in in quite a lot of ways. I would love to start by talking about the golden ratio, um, something that I've heard about through sort of photography and, and art and stuff. How does, yeah, can you tell us a bit about where this came from and what it has to do with beauty? Yeah, so the golden ratio, um, it's actually a mathematical formula, um, which was first identified in ancient Greece. And it was about 
trying to understand why certain things in nature or in our society, why do we see them as beautiful? And it was discovered that oftentimes, whether it was art or architecture or something in nature, if it was beautiful, it often followed this um, ratio. And so it started being applied that, you know, if something had this ratio, then it was beautiful. And so it got caught up in that way in what we see as beautiful today in people, whether it's um, faces or bodies. Um, and I should have said that the golden ratio is about balance and it's about harmony and it's about symmetry. So those are kind of some of the key things that underline what is beautiful. So subjective, like. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting when we think about ourselves in terms of pursuing, say, symmetry, that humans are actually not symmetrical, as everybody knows, yeah. who's gone to get themselves fitted for a bra or even a pair of shoes. You know, one foot is bigger than the other, one boob is bigger than the other. So the pursuit of symmetry is like, you know, an end, a horizon you're probably never going to meet, which sets you up for the yeah, this perfectionist, um, unattainable pursuit. Um, and it's really interesting to know that that was something that was, you know, that's been in our culture for so long. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the values of this kind of theory is that it is, you know, it seems to be quite objective. It's an easy way to say, you know, either yes, you are meeting those standards or no, you're not. Same with um, BMI, right? So tell us a little bit about you know, where that came from, how that originated? Yeah, so BMI is really interesting. And I think there's a lot of um, stuff out there about, you know, questioning the BMI and some of the maths which sits behind it. Um, so originally, the maths formula that was used to create BMI, so looking at the height and weight ratio for people, it actually came from a Belgian mathematician in the 19th century called Adolphe Quillette. So he didn't develop it at all with, sorry, he didn't develop it thinking at all about weight or um, health. It was originally developed because he was on a quest to discover what a average human physical characteristics were. So he used it to find that average within the population. So it was never meant to be used for individual um, measurements anyway. Um, and then it wasn't until 1972 that um, a, physician, a physiologist called Anzal Keys took this math and then started to apply it to populations to see if they could work out what individual health according to weight might look like. So it was quite a big push from uh, scientists and health professionals and insurance companies to be able to actually determine, to, to determine health based on weight. So the study that he did, he applied Colette's math and he uh, took a sample of about 7,500 European men and then applied this calculation to work out what the average weight of that population was and then was able to work out the BMI categories from that, whether it was underweight to, you know, quote-unquote, morbidly obese. So another study that just that used men, <laughs> um, much like uh, it makes me think of um, how for years crash test dummies, um, they again, based on, yeah, kind of male bodies, didn't take female bodies into account at all. Even in 95 yeah. masks, I know, I know of um, health professionals who found it difficult originally with N95 masks that were designed for a, um, a much bigger face or designed for men. Mm. 
Mm. Oh, exactly. And the fact that it only focused on this one type of you know person and we apply it across the board, irrespective of gender or um, ethnicity or ability, it's, yeah, it's got a lot of flaws within it. And the BMI index has shifted a bit. Um, in the 90s, mm. it had, had a shift too, didn't it, Sarah? Yeah, so in 1998, um, they actually changed the overweight uh, cutoff category. So I think it went uh, from being, I think it was 27.8 to 25. Um, and so overnight, millions of people went from being in the normal category to the overweight category without gaining any, any weight at all. Yeah, but I just think it's important to note because it just shows how um, constructed these categories are and they're not something that's actually based on science or nutrition or even fact it's just something that we've made up and as such can yeah. change just absolutely I think that's su that's such an important point to note because there's so many things especially and we'll touch on this when we talk about health that are taken as fact because they um, mm. exist or, um, you know, in a medical setting or a health setting. So we presume mm. that they are pretty robust and it's worth just challenging those assumptions. Um, in the show notes, I'll put a link to a podcast. Uh, the Maintenance Phase podcast does an episode on the body mass index and does a really big mm. deep dive. Um, it's over an hour long, which we don't have time here for today, but a really deep dive into, yeah, the, into the BMI. Yeah. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a great episode to have a listen to. Um, just skipping on now to another number that we use all the time, the numbers that are inside our T-shirts and dresses and pants, yes. so standardized, clo standardized clothing mm. sizes, where did mm. they come from? Yeah, so before the Industrial Revolution, there was no such thing as mass-produced clothes. So everything that we wore, whether you were um, wealthy or lower class, was all handmade so it was either sewn by yourself or by a seamstress or tailor and so clothes were made um, specifically to your measurements um, and so they always fit perfectly to you and then when the industrial revolution came about and they started being able to mass produce fabrics and clothes um, it meant that they were only making clothes in really specific sizes and so your body now had to fit into those clothes and as we know from today, sometimes clothing sizes are really weird. And yeah. how on earth someone's body would fit into them is just, yeah, so confusing. Yeah, they're so variable. Yeah. And I, it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, the size in your clothes, you know, and attach that to your self-worth. I know, you know, myself and a lot of people who you know, over the years have gone, you know, this means this or that. And, and actually it's just, like you say, inconsistent, different brands. Really, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love for people to take a moment, um, people who are listening, to think about how this aspect of diet culture shows up for you. So as Michelle mentioned, what is your relationship with numbers and your body? How do you feel about clothing sizes or the number on the scales or the BMI category that you, mm. your body fits into. Um, just have a little moment to think about whether you consider certain numbers acceptable and other numbers unacceptable. And mm. perhaps also think about where did you learn to have beliefs about those numbers? Where did they come from? And consider challenging them as well. I know that I have chucked out my scales. Mm. Um, have Same. you chucked out your scales, Michelle? 
Yeah, yeah, they're gone. <laughs> um, which I guess brings us on to this this idea about acceptable and unacceptable um, slides us nicely into a conversation about morality. Um, how what again? What does morality have to do with body ideals? Yeah, um, a bit like math, but I think it's it's quite obscured um, in today's world when we think about our bodies, but. It, it once again has a lot to do with how we think about ourselves. Um, we can see it uh, in modern day where we think about um, being food as being good or bad. Um, mm. Our bodies are being, you know, good or bad, um, which is quite this um, black and white way of thinking about ourselves. Um, there's also a lot of history caught up in morality. So whether it's um, our you know, European colonial has a long legacy of anti-blackness um, and colonialism and creating the other as a way of demonstrating quote-unquote superiority. All of that is tied up in morality and how we think about food and our weight as a consequence. Absolutely. Mm. And just have, just thinking about religion, does, does religion mm. play a part here too? How does religion play a part? Yeah, so... Religion, I think um, a lot of religion teaches about um, temperance around food, the idea of, you know, not being indulgent and really demonises the idea of gluttony and kind of compares it to sinning. So this kind of rhetoric that oh. we see um, has really translated and been picked up by modern day diet culture. Um, yeah, to say that if you are being indulgent in food, you know, that you're not having the kind of restraint and self-control that you're supposed to be. So interesting that that all stems back to religion. Um, you know, the whole thing of like it's a moral, it's a moral failing and you're going to hell. <laughs> how, how do you think we're incentivized to think of, you know, certain types of bodies as bad? How is that reinforced in our society? Like, it's a very big question. Um, yeah, it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, the biggest thing that it has to do with it is that we have this standard in Euro-colonial societies that it's, it's white, it's male, it's thin, it's able-bodied, it's cisgendered. And so anything at all that exists outside of that is seen as wrong and bad and the other. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter how it differs, it's wrong and should do oh. everything within its power to, you know, come up and actually conform to this, you know, Euro-colonial standard. And mm. I think a lot of the reason that we are incentivized to think that those kinds of bodies are bad, you know, it's got a really long legacy, but it's also about, um, I think, in a way, protecting ourselves. Because if there's always the other, well, then oh. that person over there is, you know, different and, you know, they're not, they can, you know, get the discrimination and the stigma and, mm. you know, we'll be over here and we'll be okay. Mm. It really, yeah. it reminds me, I'm going to like take a um, trip back in time to my um, mm. first year psychology papers. <laughs> um, I won't tell you when they were, but um, <laughs> talking about in-groups and out-groups. So, yeah. you know, we're, humans are social animals and we rely on each other for, for, to survive and thrive. And so to, in order to survive and thrive, we need each other. And one way to do that is to have an in-group. And one way to strengthen an in-group is to have an out-group. 
So yes. we, we bond together. If you think about um, football fans or, you know, families or, you know, to have, an, to have, an, have a common enemy, um, and you can see this in politics too, to have a common enemy bonds the in-group mm. and strengthens the in-group, strengthens their motivations to work together. And so I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Sarah, when you're talking about othering. Um, mm. And, you know, it's not, we, we do it um, not because we're flawed, but it is sort of part mm. of our kind of natural biological drive. And it's, it's mm. about, you know, questioning, questioning that. Um, a book that I read, and again, I'll link this in the show notes, I'm sure you've read it too, was um, Fearing the Black Body. The Racial mm. Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina, Dr. Sabrina Strings. Um, so that's a really great read in terms of understanding how um, white superiority has um, used fat phobia and used the assignment of good bodies and bad bodies um, as a way to kind of justify and further itself. And I think it's so interesting to think about how this aspect of diet culture shows that, you know, think about thinking about our own lives, um, you know, some of the common ways we might talk about food or bodies that have those moralistic connotations. I know for myself, um, in the past couple of years, I've, I've actively tried to stop saying, you know, good food, bad food, like, you know, just to be really aware of all that. Um, I see Hannah's written in the notes, slutty food. Tell me about that, Hannah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a friend, <laughs> a friend of mine said that she, oh, I hope she's not listening to this. Um, hi, if you are listening. Um, a friend of mine said that she had a place in her pantry for what she called slutty food, um, mm. which I just thought was this really interesting, like, um, kind of um, assignment of yeah. food, like, I'm going to use the word junk food. See, so junk food, like yeah. um, pr like just heavily processed food and chocolate and sweet foods and things like that. And she had assigned those, the term slutty food. And I was like, whoa, isn't that such an interesting like yeah. crossover with like the whore Madonna complex. Mm. And, and what does that mean about you when you eat it? And um, how does that make you feel when you eat it? And if you're not eating it, like how pure you are or yeah. wholesome yes. or good or whatever. Because I think, you know, like you said, um, Michelle, assigning food, good or bad labels is one thing. And But then when you hear people talk about their eating, it's so entrenched in their sense of identity yeah. that they will say, I have been good. I yes. have been bad. Yes. You know, it's like. No one's burning down orphanages here. Like this is how bad have you been? You know, like yeah. um, really I'd love for people to take a moment to think about the common ways they might refer to bodies, their own body, or mm. food that has moralistic connotations. So, um, junk food, being good or bad, being yeah. naughty. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's worth just having a little contemplation about that yeah and seeing how helpful that is just to quickly jump back to talking about the slushy food I just had a thought um and she talks about it in her book um Dr Sabrina Strings and it's about this idea that when European colonizers went into um colonial community uh, sorry indigenous communities especially in Africa they saw that people were quite indulgent in food and also sex is something they talk about and the mm -hmm. fetishization mm -hmm. of Indigenous people. And I think, isn't it interesting, and I'm sure your friend had no conscious thought of this at all, 
but it's still this idea that being indulgent in food is somehow also linked to being sexually promiscuous and not having, I guess, strict controls over your body and, you know, this free, yeah, embrace sexual liberty. And again, there's another podcast that I'll link to in the notes with Virgie Tova, and she Mm. talks about the origins of... um, yeah, promiscuity with mm. gluttony, like the idea of the yeah. crossing over quote unquote sins, um, and mm. how what that has to do with Kellogg, who was um, involved oh, in yes. cereal foods. Um, really, really interesting read, mm. uh, listen to. So I'd, I'd highly recommend that. And that's on that that particular topic, how that came about that mm. um, gluttony was associated with, yeah, dirtiness and promiscuity and um, kind of wild and um, uncontrollable sexual desires. Fascinating stuff. Um, and then moving on to health. So health is a big one. Oh, yes, it's huge. <laughs> I feel like I need to brace myself, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, let's, t- let's talk about health. So let's go back in time and talk about um, the word diet. Where does the word diet come from? Yeah, so once again, um, lovely ancient Greeks um, gave us that word. So um, diet, a diet comes from the Greek word uh, dieta, which basically means a way of life. So uh, during this time, um, physicians like Hippocrates, who's often referred to as the founder of Western medicine, um, used these kind of terms to refer to a person's whole being. So it was about you know, what they ate and what they drunk, as well as their exercise, but also hygiene and sleep and like hobbies and habits and that sort of thing. So it was much more of a holistic approach. And he thought, along with many others at the time, that having, you know, a good diet, the right diet, once again, those moralistic terms, that it would actually help your physical health and that it would make sure, you know, it would be preventative to illness and those sorts of things. So... Today, the diet that we know are a lot more um, food focused and maybe a bit of exercise thrown into the certain diets that we do, but it, it definitely doesn't have that same holistic view. No, no mention of mental health. And it's, it's um, do you see this shift where food is therefore becoming, you, you mentioned before about societies um, being indulgent or society mm-hmm. celebrating or commiserating or comforting themselves with food. And then mm-hmm. do you start to see a shift in history um, with physicians or scientists looking at food more as a, as a fuel? Mm. Yeah. So I think it's, there's such a long legacy of our bodies and food being caught up in all these aspects of society and culture that have absolutely nothing to do with health. And I think that's really important to think about um, because it, there's all this background that comes before it's ever, you know, thought of to do with illness and that sort of thing. So, you know, trying to take away the pleasure of food and the celebration around food mm. is in no way a new thing. So, you know, it was back in ancient Greece where they thought that, you know, the mind should be able to control the body and its pleasures mm-hmm. and therefore people should just eat what they need to, you know, reach that uh, intellectual development and reasoning that they were, you know, going to need. And mm. unfortunately, bodily need was food. So you had to give it what it needed so that you could go on with the rest of your day, essentially. Um, through to the Industrial Revolution, where we see that, 
you know, the development of machines really helped um, speed along production of, you know, so many different things in society. And machines needed fuel so that they could do the activities. And so this rhetoric mm -hmm. got applied to humans. We needed our fuel, which was food, to get mm -hmm. on and do what we needed to, to be, you know, meaningful contributors to the economic um, development of the time. And it became very much just this means to an end. You know, you had to eat so that you could do your life, but that it should just be that. There shouldn't be any kind of attachment to food. And it's interesting how we just lost, you know, that whole, you know, like you say, it just it became so narrow, the version of health. Like, you know, what about mental health, um, social connection? Yeah, absolutely. It, and it's it's such a shame to only look at that one little tiny part of it and use that as our measure. I think health got reduced to something like that because it's easy. It's, you know, quali you can quali qualify what is health opposed to kind of abstract concepts like mental health or social connection. It's like, how do you measure that? You can't, mm. but you can measure, you know, X number of steps a day or X number um, kilograms on the scale. Yeah, so true. So that, that which can be measured is favoured <laughs> in a way, yeah. isn't it? Um, I, we, we did an episode which I'd love people to, to hop on and listen to if they're more interested in nutrition and it's, it's, um, influence on health, which was with Dr. Lindo Bacon. And we talked about the role that nutrition plays in our individual and um, community health and how it's perhaps um, less impactful than we think it might be. So that one's a really great episode to, to have a listen mm. to. Um, just a quick note on, I, I guess, quick comment on pleasure with food. Um, Isabel Fox and Duke, who Michelle and I did a, a course with, mentioned mm -hmm. that the narrowing food to the idea of just fuel for the machine, mm -hmm. as you said, is a little mm -hmm. bit like narrowing the idea of sex as being only for procreation. And yes, so it's a little bit so like, true. why would you narrow a something that humans um, enjoy, need plus enjoy um, to something to have such a narrow focus, right? Yeah, definitely. And like, it's probably a bit of a cynical view to take, but I think it's just um, that's got no benefit for the society and its, you know, desire to progress. It's there's a benefit in taking out that pleasure. Um, you know, people ha are less distracted. People are more controllable if they're able, you know, to manipulate people in these ways. Um, so I guess for everybody at home, I wonder if people can think about their health and well-being in a broader way. So Michelle mentioned mental health. We've talked about social connect and connection and social health, um, as well as physical health, spiritual health. Yeah. I'm just wondering if people are even able to, you know, if they fancy it, make a list of the various facets of their health and well-being and evaluate where they're putting all of their efforts. Yeah. What is missing? And if you think this is a problem, and perhaps we can even talk about it too. So can you think of areas, um, Sarah or Michelle, where you feel like you could be putting some more effort or, you know, f focusing on instead of other areas? Just downtime and just giving yourself the, you know, the license to just relax and rest, um, which is definitely something which we are discouraged to do um, in our society, but I think just getting comfortable with that and um, not 
being critical of yourself for doing that is definitely something I'm working on at the moment. That's really important. I think for myself, um, I have irritable bowel and, you know, I spent the most of my life looking at foods, what foods are making it worse or better. Um, and then it wasn't until the last sort of like four or five years that I started going, actually, mental, like there's such a connection between irritable bowel and mental health that, yeah, I've really started to broaden and shift my idea of, of what health is for me as well. What about you, Hannah? Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, I think spiritual health and just, yeah, thinking being curious again um being philosophical again would be amazing i think and yeah would definitely add to my kind of toolbox um in terms of my overall health and well-being and i've just recently started meeting up with some women to swim in the ocean and um meeting up for to do zumba and dance and i so i think that's social i'm noticing the impact of Mm. my social health on my mental health and physical health. I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm st- I, I feel like I have started to broaden that lens a lot in the last decade. And it does make me feel, yeah, it makes me feel more whole and- Yes, you realize how in, in, intertwined everything is. 100%. And it's taking it yeah. back to the, you know, the original view of dieta from ancient Greece, yeah. which was about the holistic view of um, well-being across all facets of life. Absolutely. Ah, oh, wow, Sarah, th- this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. It's a huge topic and... Um, yeah, I think you've given us lots to think about. And as we said, you know, there'll be more in the show notes about if people are interested in investigating a bit further. But also tell us where can people find you and the Body Studies Project? Yeah, um, so the best place to find us is um, over on Instagram um, at the Body Studies Project. Um, we do have a website that will be coming soon. Um, and I'll put the link um, in the bio of Instagram. And we are over on Twitter as well. But I I'm not very dedicated at posting there. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough too. I highly recommend Sarah's um, The Body Studies Project yeah. account. It's it's really, it's so thought-provoking and it's so well-researched and you've poured so much of yourself and your passion into it. I really highly recommend it. And I hope that one day you mentioned to me, Sarah, a little while ago that perhaps you might be doing workshops or you might expand it out to sort of bigger um bigger discussions which i'm just so looking forward to thank you so much you have been listening to bod almighty the podcast that gives you practical how-to steps towards body acceptance and confidence you can find us on instagram at bod almighty podcast please do get in touch to let us know if you have any questions or suggestions we love to hear from you from both of us thank you and goodbye